What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> oh, the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, with the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? Have you not seen Yes, that's Quentin Tarantino referencing his own Killing Nazis movie in the director's latest, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is out in wide release this weekend. Leonardo DiCaprio and Al Pacino in that bit from the film's trailer. Tarantino's new film takes place in Tinseltown circa 1969, when old Hollywood was giving way to new Hollywood, and the Manson cult was setting up shop just outside of town on an old movie set. Our review plus our top 10 Tarantino characters. It's all ahead. Wait a minute, you said 10? On Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Somehow, Josh, it's been over a month. Can that be right since we were in the studio together? I say, can that be right? But I'm feeling every bit of the rust. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully we can shake it off as we go. Yeah, I'm, I'm not quite as rusty having been around for last show, but I, I hope you remember how to do this. Yeah, we will see. We did get a chance to hang out a bit this past weekend, though. We always enjoy highlighting the annual Film Spotting Family Retreat to Spring Green, Wisconsin. Sam and Carrie, wonderful hosts yes. again there in Spring Green. And we had a little double feature of our own, didn't we? At American Players Theater, we saw Macbeth and Twelfth Night, yep. two nights in a row, one a little warmer than the other, uh, but still enjoyed both of those productions. Met Agnes Varda, the dog, in in person. Do you say that about <laughs> a dog? How is it that Sam got the greatest dog of all time with the greatest name of all time? It's really appropriate. Nice dog. Pretty much all Tarantino this week. We might get a Shakespeare reference, maybe even a Twelfth Night reference as we get into our top 10 Tarantino characters a bit later. But first, our Once Upon a Time in Hollywood review, which entirely consists of an argument over whether or not Charles Manson counts as a Tarantino character. All right, what's the matter, partner? It's official, old buddy. Well, it has been. Uh, August night and the leaves hanging down and the grass on the here I am, flat on my ass. Who, who I got living next door to me? I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this? That's me. I play Miss Carlson, the klutz. Oh. <laughs> Charlie's gonna dig you. And that gospel group. In his neo-noir adaptation of Raymond Chandler's novel, The Long Goodbye, Robert Altman transports Philip Marlowe out of 1950s L.A. and out of Humphrey Bogart's body, see The Big Sleep, into the early 70s and into the taller but decidedly less commanding frame of Elliot Gould. Our new and not-so-improved Marlowe, an out-of-shape, out-of-touch anachronism in a Los Angeles where he only has to open the door to see a group of naked women getting high and doing yoga all day, spends the first 20 minutes of his movie trying unsuccessfully, to feed his cat. A sequence I was thinking about, and I'm guessing Quentin Tarantino was too, early in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, as I watched Brad Pitt's Cliff Booth 
in his grungy trailer go through the motions of opening cans of food for his dog while preparing his own opulent dinner of Kraft macaroni and cheese. Now, Pitt's Cliff is still a lot cooler than Gould's Marlowe. I mean, he's Brad freaking Pitt. Even the way he mixes the powdered cheese into the pasta is impressive, and his pet obeys, not scratch him defiantly and run away. But make no mistake, Cliff is a misfit. A loser. A former stuntman who mostly spends his days as driver and handyman for Leonardo DiCaprio's fading TV star Rick Dalton. The official plot synopsis for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood describes Tarantino's ninth and supposedly penultimate film as, quote, a tribute to the final moments of Hollywood's golden age. Tribute isn't a word we'd associate with The Long Goodbye, in which Altman demythologizes the hard-boiled detective, but also the myth-making factory itself. In fact, there's only one song on the soundtrack, Hooray for Hollywood, ironically repurposed into various forms. To be sure, Tarantino, perhaps our most voracious cinephile director, lovingly, obsessively chronicles the sights, sounds, and cinema of old Hollywood, even going so far as to feature Margot Robbie's Sharon Tate in what is surely one of the movie's standout set pieces, wandering dreamily into a theater to watch herself on the big screen, joyfully absorbing the crowd's reactions. But there seems to me a darkness at the heart of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and not just in the underlying menace of the hippie family gathering out at Spawn's ranch, the dilapidated Hollywood set where Cliff and Rick once earned their spurs. And there's a melancholy that runs deeper and sadder than nostalgic longing. After all, how do you long for a time and place that was never real to begin with? Josh, is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a thoughtful reckoning? with the fantasy of old Hollywood, or is Tarantino here merely fetishizing? It depends on what you want to focus on, because there are enough. This thing is so stuffed with references to his own work, as we've already suggested, to previous Hollywood films that actually do exist and projects that are just imagined and thought might come into being, projects that we see come into being, Mm -hmm. spaghetti westerns. I mean, yeah, if you want to focus on the references... You'll be working overtime here, and you might be left with thinking that it was nothing but that. Not just the references, though, the cars, the music, yeah, just LA building, itself. building that sort of atmosphere, mm-hmm. that cinephile playground. But that's not what captivated me about this movie. If, if you like that stuff, have fun with it. I did find it interesting and amusing. But this is now one of my favorite Tarantino films because of the thoughtfulness, which I absolutely think is there. The word you used, melancholy, that is what just exudes out of this film. It's mm-hmm. it's not it is leisurely in the way you describe that scene of Cliff feeding his dog and the time, the patience that Tarantino gives to that moment. And he has long scenes throughout his career. That's nothing new. But a lot of times they throb with this tension underneath. Yeah. The I was gonna say that here, very thing. Yep. They don't have that. They're more observant. They're more ruminative. They're just more thoughtful. And I think what is going on here is using this scenario of a change of eras. And we we know now, looking back, how quickly things are going to change from the studio system to the distribution, the methods of distribution. This is still a time where people could count on a specific show playing at a specific time every week. And that gets disrupted as well. I think Tarantino in this film is looking back on all of that disruption, not with nostalgia, but with melancholy, a real sense of loss mm-hmm. and wondering what did we lose in some of these changes. And you can see that in the faces he chooses to represent the new era, these hippie 
murderers who are clearly not entirely representative of New Hollywood. But that's the version we get yes. of it. And think about how they're introduced. I know. I, I think of them, these women, when we first see them out of focus coming down a street in L.A., they're looking to hitch rides. They jump in dumpsters scrounging for food. They're like these menacing garbage fairies that come on mm-hmm. the screen and haunt us. And we only feel more ill at ease with them the more we get to know them, the more they become significant part of the plot. And it seems to me that the movie is looking back on all of this with a certain amount of regret, mm-hmm. a certain amount of sadness. And I find that incredibly fascinating. Whether or not you agree with that perspective, um, and I find it fascinating, I think, because there's another level to it, which maybe, you know, we'll, we'll get back to later on in this review. The fact, as you mentioned, that this is Tarantino's ninth film, that this is someone who has self-declared he's almost done with his career. And because of that, because of the story, because of that reality and because of the tone of it, I feel like this is a Twilight film in a lot of really – seems strange to use this word as well for a Tarantino film, but a lot of lovely ways – that made it, uh, again, at this point, one of my favorites of his. Yeah, I wonder if some hardcore Tarantino fans will struggle with this movie a bit. And I'll admit, as I did a little bit in the moment, and it's the kind of film that has only grown in my estimation the more I think about it, the more I do try to process it. But there does seem to me an absence of what, for lack of a better word, I would dub cool scenes. And we've come to expect that a lot from Quentin Tarantino. I think I even fell into that trap where I've started to associate Tarantino because I haven't gone back and revisited many of his films. I've seen a lot of them only once and only because of Sacred Cows here on the show of Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs have I seen those in the past five to six years. So when I think about Tarantino, I'm thinking of the guy who opens Inglorious Bastards with that 20-minute Hans Landa conversation. I'm thinking about, and it's going to come up later for sure, the tavern sequence in Inglorious Bastards. And there are many other examples in his recent films where it really is, you said, tension. It's about the wordplay. It's about the craft of the screenplay. And it's also about the suspense. Absolutely. It's very much about there being some kind of release that's coming. And usually that is some form of violence. Now, in this film, it's as if he took that structure and stretched it out to two hours and 39 minutes, Mm. right? We know, or at least we think we know, what the inevitable conclusion is, and we know that it's going to be violent if we know anything about the story of the Tate-Manson murder. So, in this case, we are hanging out with these characters a whole lot more than we are watching them go through these fascinating kind of psychological and linguistic contortions that maybe we have gotten used to with Tarantino. But the more I think about it, and I do reflect on movies like Pulp Fiction, how much in those other films do we just hang out with characters and spend time with characters? So this isn't really anything new, actually, for Tarantino at all. And you mentioned all of the references. I talked about what I imagine, as I said, was a direct homage to The Long Goodbye. The name itself, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, obviously invokes Sergio Leone, one of his idols. It also suggests a fairy tale, which I do think manifests itself in a few different ways here. And the big one for me, I was really struck by the use of sound. And that shouldn't be a surprise either to anyone who has watched a lot of Tarantino films, at least in terms of song choices, whether it's popular music or it's more obscure songs. And there's usually a mixture in his movies. But here it's the combination of music, mostly emanating from radios or record players directly, mixed with news reports and TV shows and commercials, I became aware about maybe the 30-minute mark in that 
we had almost a near constant soundtrack, which really gives it a dreamlike quality. When characters aren't engaging in those hanging out kind of conversations, and even sometimes when they are, we are hearing those sounds, sounds of the day and sounds of the time. And it did, as I said, make it feel a little bit dreamlike, but also it made me constantly aware of how connected everyone must have been or felt at that time and how popular culture connected everyone. So, yes, there are some song distinctions. I think if we really broke it down, and I would love to watch the film again just to take note of this alone, we can see distinctions in the type of music, for example, Sharon Tate plays in her home with Roman Polanski, which is Paul Revere and the Raiders, who I love, by the way, which is still a little bit old Hollywood and hasn't quite transitioned into that late 60s kind of acid rock or trippier stuff. And then the stuff that we know the Manson family is listening to, for example. But even the Manson family is watching FBI on Sunday night, just like Rick and Cliff are and just like Monpa Kettle out in the middle of Kansas. Any normal American and even the abnormal ones are all watching these same shows. And everyone in L.A. is hearing these same commercials on the radio. So no matter the divide, whether it's the old versus new, it's establishment versus anti-establishment, they were consuming largely the same mass media. And driving around L.A., which we see a lot of in this film, you were experiencing those sounds. Maybe that's what Tarantino longs for the most is that feeling of connection the way pop culture drove that connection that's one of the things that's been lost right is the monoculture and in some ways that's good it's led to diversity and it's led to just a diversification of experience but also i think there's a longing here for that time when everyone knew the same songs Mm -hmm. everyone watched the same stuff and it was part of the common language and i think it's also serving a very practical purpose in this film because even as we describe the plot it might seem that it's kind of a stretch to create these fictional fringe Hollywood figures in Cliff and Rick, DiCaprio and Pitt, and then somehow at the same time explore the connection of the Manson family. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the reasons it works so well, for me at least, is because they share the same oral landscape in the way you're describing. We're always hearing, if it's not something coming from a car radio, then you're right. It's a TV show or it's an ad. So, So what is, you know, Rick may never meet Roman Polanski, who is pictured in a few scenes here, mm-hmm. even though they live next door. Yeah. But they're listening to the same DJ. Yes. Um, and so they inhabit the same space, the same world, the same movie. And that that stre- it doesn't seem as much of a stretch. So I think he jumps over that potential hurdle with this film in a very impressive way. And the driving scenes you mentioned, there are so many of them mm-hmm. and just have this sense there's a melancholy there but also an appreciation for how important it is to just have some time to ride around on a nice day with the car windows rolled down and the radio blaring that's something obviously uh kids do mm-hmm. but i think it's something that you have to be older and realize once it's gone to fully appreciate it when it's not something that's such a natural part of your life. And sure. this is this is another way this feels like a Twilight film. It's made by someone who has reached that point in their life where they're looking back on it. It's, it's nostalgia in a way, but it's this appreciation that has a bittersweetness too. And so I think all of those scenes of characters driving around has that element and they also connect each character to each other because they're all in L.A. Sure. They're all driving to get everywhere. And again, they share this similar world. And I think... Everything you said is absolutely there in those driving sequences, but especially in that opening sequence when I talked about Brad Pitt's Cliff going to his grungy trailer, 
as we follow him on that scenic drive, it's also really emphasizing the haves and the have nots. It's him leaving that Hollywood Hill yeah. and we get to see him go all the way through L.A. and out into the middle of nowhere behind a drive in. <laughs> and then that's where he actually lives. But I love what you said about inhabiting the same space because Tarantino also emphasizes that not just through the music, but he actually does it physically with the camera as well. All those overhead, I guess, crane shots, that's what they seemed to me, that move so fluidly between Mm -hmm. spaces. And he employs them maybe four or five times, really notably in the film. And one of the shocks of the Manson murders, and we've plugged this before on the show, but if you haven't listened to Karina Longworth's You must remember this entire season, I think like 12 episodes devoted to the story of Hollywood and the Manson murders. Then do yourself a favor, go out and get it right now. I think it really will help inform a lot of what you see in this movie. But one of the shocks of the Manson murders is that they happened on Cielo Drive, that they would happen anywhere is a shock, but they happen within this I think even Rick Dalton, DiCaprio's character, calls it at one point like, this is a closed community or this is a private community, right? But it's not really. (laughs) There's a gate. There's a gate at the Polanski house. It's not like you can't get over the gate. This is just a road that happens to be up in the Hollywood Hills. But even as we see them drive, Rick's character, Cliff, the Polanskis, they drive at whatever speed they want coming down that hill, going up the hill. They own it. They feel like they own the space. And by having that camera just kind of very neatly go over that gate, go over the homes themselves, go from Plansky's house into Rick's house and down that street, it really does emphasize the fact that this is just a house. It's a house with a gate and there isn't really a barrier. The barrier, and I'm going to sound like a Manson family member here, the barrier is in your mind, man, Mm -hmm, right? The barrier really (laughs) is just about perception and this idea of the hippies versus the Hollywood elite. But there's nothing actually separating them, which is the horrifying epiphany that all those people had after the Manson murders, that kind of, quote unquote, loss of innocence, which we were well on our way to as a country already. But for that specific group of people in Hollywood at that time, this was that traumatic eye-opening experience. I like the detail that Rick's house, which is right next door, as I said, doesn't have a gate. So he's he's at a different strata in a sense. Right. And, and he's that fits with his longing to be in. With Polanski, yes. with Tate, with but he these up-and-comers. He doesn't dare talk to them, no, even no, though they're in the driveway no. just about 20 feet away. Because somewhere in the back of his mind, he feels like he's accomplished enough that they should talk to him as well. So it's kind of playing this yeah. Hollywood game. I, I, can we spend some time on the performances now? Yes, because um, I, I hope that this goes down as a pit performance you're a big fan of. Huge fan. Um, he has, I think he has such ease in almost every role he plays where no matter what's going on, he seems like he's in the right place on the screen. Well, here, there's another level of softness to it. And I don't know if this is an age thing. I love how this movie in general and both actors embrace the fact that they're playing fading golden gods. Mm -hmm. You see the creases by their eyes. You do. The movie plays that up. So there's an extra level of ease that Pitt brings. But at the same time, and the movie drops a, a little hint about this fairly early on, we sense that he has a level of potential for violence in him that if things go a certain way, yes. he could turn into one of those really scary Tarantino, Tarantino established that characters. in a lot of subtle ways. Yep. And it's established and Pitt carries it mm-hmm. as well, even as he's completely at ease. DiCaprio, 
oh man, this is, he's not as showy as he has been in other, you know, as he was in Django Unchained, for instance, and in some other, you know, of our favorite roles of his. But he taps into the melancholy yes, of this movie so yes. well. That's where the connection for me. Um, he gets a, he does get a big scene when he's disappointed in his performance on set, and he goes back to his trailer, and it's it's a frightening scene because he physically threatens himself with suicide in the mirror. Yeah. Uh, so that's a big scene. But otherwise, the way that he carries himself as Rick, as this guy who just sees his fame dwindling away, and then he gets another. See, as we're talking about, there are some big. Tarantino set pieces oh, in here. They yep. just don't feel like it, as you said, in the right? moment. It's the scene that's in the trailer where he goes back to that set and uh, has convinced himself he's going to show them he's still got it, and he delivers a line performance that um, gets a much better reception. We can argue about how great he really is in that scene, but it doesn't matter. The point is Rick is invested in that moment. He matters to Hollywood yes. in that moment. He matters again. And DiCaprio letting that wash over him um, is really amazing. A, a place where he he finds a little kernel of redemption within this overarching story of sadness that he's mostly mm-hmm. a part of. Yeah, and I think you see that as I was talking about in the setup, this idea of darkness and melancholy, I really was thinking about Rick and thinking specifically about DiCaprio's performance and the way he imbues almost every line reading with that. And the fact that he is, as an actor, willing much to Pitt's character's chagrin sometimes, he's willing to let it all out and just show how emotional yeah. and insecure he really is. But I do think that as much as Tarantino is trying to make the Rick Dalton character, in a way, the hero, make it about his redemption, to long for this old Hollywood period, maybe when the establishment had a little bit more control and we could get off on a whole tangent about how maybe conservative this film ultimately is. You already touched on it a little bit, but I do think he taps into the fact that this system This Hollywood system that was in place will always look to crown a new king, will always look to crown a new star, will always find a way to get rid of you for the next big thing, that he'll always just be a cog in that process. And I think DiCaprio makes some really interesting choices that I wonder if they were fully in the script, knowing Tarantino, they probably were. But he, for example, will right from the very beginning, and it seems to be most notable in these situations of really high tension and when he's at his most irate and angry and mad at himself he'll stutter i got a four-man team here rick if i need more than that i gotta get it approved and you know i i I gotta look after my dudes hey hey, and if your dudes were a better match for me i'd say okay you got me but but, but that's not the case and you know it he's a great match for me that stood out to me because i think it was a way for DiCaprio and Tarantino to suggest that even though Dalton in a lot of ways achieved his dreams, right? He became a TV star, at least for a little bit of time. He's still in Hollywood. He's still trying to make movies. He's still getting cast, even if he's not having the career he wants or thinks he deserves. Getting that fame and any of that money doesn't compensate for your own sort of personal failings and your insecurities. And it comes out in that moment. You wonder if almost his whole life, he said, well, I'll finally be the person no one's ever making fun of. I'll be the person mm. that's in control, and I'm going to be this big star. And as I said, mostly achieved it. He still can't completely get rid of who he fundamentally is. And I think Tarantino, as I said, is highly aware of that. I even have a theory that I do not think is true, but it hit me last night. I'll at least just throw it out there. There's not enough evidence, or maybe there is actually, to shoot this down completely. But there is a key scene in the movie where he 
is sitting next to an actress, an eight-year-old actress, and mm-hmm. they have this great exchange Another about— Another very long scene. Yes, and they have this great exchange about acting and the process of acting. And he's reading a book, or he claims to be reading a book about a Bronco Buster. Now, in that articulation of what the book is about, because she asks him, he— basically tells his own personal story. The Bronco right. Buster story completely aligns with fading his as a fading cowboy, performer, yeah. Yeah. right? And it occurred to me that maybe he actually isn't reading that book at all. And maybe as we see him in a lot of sequences, he's learning his lines by listening to people. And I know that's not an uncommon technique, but you know how he was always yeah. repeating the lines to a tape recorder yes. as opposed to just reading them off a script? I wondered almost if he even had maybe a reading problem or a learning disability of some kind. And this whole thing, this whole Rick Dalton thing in some ways is an overcompensation for, again, those insecurities and his failings. Yeah, it's certainly possible. I took it at face value that he was reading that book because there is a slow dawning in the performance where he, you know, the kid who's portrayed as a really bright kid makes the connection before he does. Maybe. And so it's kind of like he has this dawning of, wait, this is me. And then that is the fuel that he uses later on. I took the slowness more as, or in retrospect, as I came up with this theory, as him deciding in the moment to be that brutally honest and really, yeah, be. really reveal himself. It's possible. I, I think, you know, Rick, when you look at things like that or even the stutter that you mentioned, I think another element that that suggests or reminds us of is that even someone as established as Rick has been as successful as he has is still at the end of the day manufactured. So it, it's not that he has become his true self. Mm-hmm. It's that Hollywood has found a way to use him and sell him because we see him in the clips from his old TV show and stuff being, you know, very, being Brad Pitt basically, yeah. or being Leonardo DiCaprio in another film. And then we see him when uh, in not the finished product and he's a guy with insecurities as we mentioned, uh, you said the word conservative, and I'm glad. I, th- I think we should talk about that because that struck me, too, as that this is, in many ways, an incredibly conservative movie. Again, it goes back to um, as you age, the tendency to return to what you knew first mm-hmm. and liked best and feel comfortable about. Um, there are some ways that's maybe neutral, shall we say. We talked about how there's the shift from television programming or there's a shift away from a studio production system. Maybe what appeals to Tarantino about that is the studio production system really thrived on genre. And we know he's a genre guy. So you 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 know what kind of movie you're going to make and you're going to get. Um, and that was obliterated by New Hollywood, right? Mm-hmm. Where suddenly genre could mean anything or it didn't have any hold. Um, but there's also the reality of like that, There's a male-dominated societal Mm -hmm. structure that was shaken with the 1970s coming out of the 1960s. I think – and this isn't to put all of these um, developments and any regret or sadness about them changing directly on Tarantino because you can look at this film itself and see the inclusion of Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate and the significant scene she gets, like the one you mentioned in the movie theater, which is very good. That he's not necessarily saying, boy, I wish Hollywood was just run by men and only about men before. Yeah. But at the same time, this is Rick and Cliff's movie. Sure. Um, it gives attention to Sharon Tate, but she's uh, gets far less attention than they do. So I think it's completely legitimate to call this a very conservative film, which sounds strange to describe a Tarantino movie that way, and then debate 
how that's maybe troubling and and how it's maybe more of a general nostalgic sort of conservatism that's more neutral. Yeah, I would argue, I suppose, that it's undeniably a conservative movie. And you're right. We can take issue with that and dissect that further. But for me, I think Tarantino is self-aware enough to know that this period that he's longing for, I've suggested this elsewhere in this conversation, I think even he knows it's an illusion. Yeah. I think even he knows it was this completely manufactured perfect. thing. It's even manufactured in his own mind. And so, of course, it wasn't perfect because in a lot of ways, it just didn't exist. Sure. And he is making it up in a way based off his own memory and his own kind of wish fulfillment. I'm glad you brought up Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate because I think this is another element of the film that will get a lot of discussion, deservedly so, especially within that specific conversation about the movie's conservatism or potential misogyny. I went in having a certain expectation just because I remember the can controversy about the question he was asked during a press conference about how she doesn't have very many lines compared to the male characters. And he just rejected that question and didn't really answer it. And Margot Robbie spoke up and said, for her, that was one of the things she really enjoyed about playing the character, actually, was imbuing her with this full life through physicality and not needing that many lines. Now, whether or not she was just defending her director and defending the work she put in or not, I guess I don't really know. But she was very supportive in that case. I would say that there's no doubt Sharon Tate has become synonymous with the idea of being a victim, of being a tragic victim. That's who she is now to history, partly because her work has been overlooked, but also because she never got to fully blossom. That's the tragedy. She never got to do more as an artist. And I do think here, because of Robbie's performance and Tarantino's direction, he does restore her to a flesh and blood person who, through what she does and how she does it, expresses her vitality, expresses her talent, is a stark contrast to the melancholy that we've talked about with Cliff and particularly Rick, especially because if you think about how in every moment, even when he's just having a conversation with someone, Rick seems to have to work so hard. And Robbie Sharon Tate is just so effortless. She just sort of glides through this world. So in a way, he's idealizing her, but I don't think that completely diminishes her as a character or as a person. And for what it's worth, Stephanie Zaharik in Time culminates her review by focusing on Robbie and her performance as Tate. And here she's talking about that sequence I mentioned in the intro, watching herself in the movie theater. Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate is watching as we are the real-life Sharon Tate playing a character in a movie. But for us, the two have blown into one person, a young woman recently married. Does she even yet know she's pregnant who has everything to look forward to? In real life, no one could save Sharon Tate. With Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Tarantino and Robbie restore life to her. The magic spell lasts only a few hours, but no one has ever brought her closer to a happily ever after. Yeah, I think that's a fair defense of um, her performance and the use of her. I think it's especially makes sense if you consider the ending and we'll just leave it at that because we don't want to go into spoilers too much, but it definitely, in terms of reclaiming the public uh, perception of who Sharon Tate is, the ending is very interesting in how Mm -hmm. it functions that way. I think, you know, the ending, let's just say, as you already alluded to, um, we feel we're probably working towards something violent. And before we mischaracterize this movie as a nonviolent film, it's fair to say we get to that violence in the ending. There is yes. also, there there are a few moments of violence in between, much milder than usually in a Tarantino work. And there's also some commentary on violence in the media. I can think of two conversations in particular where it is the explicit text. Um, it is the subject. 
I kind of and here's where I, I, I want to at least kind of get to the point that, yes, I'm a Tarantino skeptic. And those who have listened to the show for a while know this well. Uh, I'm relieved we don't have to rehash all of that, that we both like this movie. Um, but maybe this is where some of my reservations about Once a Time in Hollywood come in. I see those conversations addressing violence in the media as complete red herrings, um, almost as Tarantino um, toying with us who are concerned about that. And again, it's difficult to talk about it um, without getting into the ending. But when you consider who is saying these things um, and the actions that they commit later, it's almost like, yeah, I know this is the discourse around a lot of my movies, Mm. so I'm going to drop this in there, but it really doesn't have much to do. I'm not really trying to say anything about it in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. No. At least. They're passing comments. They're They're passing comments. Um, The ending goes pretty full Tarantino. And... It's gets it's gets gruesome. It gets disturbing. I guess the reason I find it less disturbing than in movies like maybe The Hateful Eight or Glorious Bastards is just for the way again it connects to Rick and to Cliff and to I'm sorry, I'm dancing around spoilers. But you're saying you're better this, overall with the violence I'm, here versus those other films. I'm better not in a proving way. I'm better in that it's an interesting use. Of the violence. Oh, it's interesting. When you consider um, where the movie seems to stand in regard to these two guys, um, these conservative elements that we have been talking about, um, you might come to a conclusion that it's the most disturbing use of violence in a Tarantino movie because it is actually— <laughs> that's where I'm at. It is actually hooked to a worldview. Um I don't know if I approve of that, but I find it more interesting than violence that is hooked to nothing more than uh, the urge to shock or to be gleeful about the violence. Mm-hmm. I think there's more to it here. I got that, maybe that's what I should just say. There's more to the use of the violence here, even though it's hardcore Tarantino violence. Yeah. No, I think you handled that very well for having to do as much dancing as you did. And I know we've covered this, but one aspect I really loved as we we're thinking about the different ways we see Tarantino's fetishes explored here. And yes, for those people who are well aware of his foot fetish a lot of on feet. screen, a lot of feet. We definitely get a lot of Margot Robbie's feet, including in that theater. A lot of sequence. dirty feet. A lot of dirty those, feet. Those garbage fairies, they do not take care of their feet. <laughs> no, they do not. But we get... A couple scenes. I think it really is only two scenes with Al Pacino in this movie. One maybe about three quarters of the way through, one very close to the beginning. And in that opening scene where Rick goes to have a conversation with him, he's a Hollywood producer. And during that sequence where Pacino is describing getting prepared for their meeting and how he prepared by watching two of Rick Dalton's films. And Tarantino, of course, cuts to insert shots of Pacino's character who humorously is named Schwarz, not Schwarz. Z, yes, Z. Cuts to Schwarz and his wife, not just watching the films at their house, but the films getting ready to be screened. In other words, we watch as the celluloid comes out of the canister, right? And it's being threaded (laughs) through the projector. We do actually get to see that. And again, it's as if Tarantino is showing that longing for a time where, you know, it took effort. Mm -hmm. It took effort to watch a movie. You had to be committed to it. It meant something to say, I'm going to sit down and watch two Rick Dalton films. And you did it. Nobody's Netflix and chilling. No one's streaming something just to have background noise on while you're doing something else. You were committed to consuming 
this piece of work, whether it was art or not. And maybe that's one element of the movie's conservatism you and I can both agree with. (laughs) Good point. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is currently playing in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our thoughts, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. A lot more Tarantino talk when we come back. And by that, I mean our top 10, not five, Tarantino characters. Stay with us. I was five and he was six. We rode on horses made of sticks. He wore black and I wore white He would always win the fight Bang, bang, he shot me down Bang, bang, I hit the ground Bang, bang, that awful sound Bang, bang, my baby shot me down Karate is a way of communicating. Ask me a question. What are your plans for the weekend? I'm going to do some grocery shopping and rent a film to watch in the comfort of my home. Home. That's from the trailer for the new black comedy, The Art of Self-Defense. It stars Sensei Alessandro Nivola, who you heard there in the trailer. Jesse Eisenberg is also in the film as a man suffering from a chronic case of timidity and trauma who takes classes at Nivola's dojo. Imogen Poots is also in the cast as a fellow student and instructor. Adam, you not only saw The Art of Self-Defense, but... You talked with director Riley Stearns as well. I did. And as you'll definitely hear in that conversation, if you haven't heard it already, we spent a fair amount of time talking about his first film, which is one that starred Leland Orser and Mary Elizabeth Winstead, both very good performances called Faults. It's a movie that a few listeners recommended as a potential Golden Brick candidate back in 2015. We did not listen to our listeners, Josh, and see that movie, but it's very good. I think The Art of Self-Defense is very good as well, and we're going to make up for lost time by making this a Golden Brick candidate, only his second feature film, and obviously new to us as a writer and director. And I don't think I'll need to explain the reasons why it's a Golden Brick contender if you hear the interview, because we talk a lot about his stylistic choices, about his personal vision for the film, and really the way He handles tone, which is something that I think will catch people off guard a little bit with this film, even if they've seen faults. But once you tap into the movie's rhythm and its sensibility, which I definitely did, and I do want to play just a clip from that conversation. Here is Riley Stearns talking about tone. I do think that that's kind of how we treated uh, the performance for all the actors was, was going in and saying, to this character, what they are saying is fact. They're not sugarcoating anything. Their opinion uh, is, is all that's on their mind. And so when, when an actor says something in the film, they believe it. And I think if we ever winked or nodded uh, in the way that the, the lines were delivered or, or to the audience, I think that the, the humor would be lost. So for me, it was more important for the characters to believe what they're saying and not find anything ridiculous in what they're saying. And then as an audience, we can determine that that's funny. We don't need to be handheld and told that something's funny to laugh at something. 
So officially, we will add the Art of Self-Defense to our Golden Brick page, our annual award for kind of the overlooked movie of the year, a movie that's not getting a wide release, maybe flying under the radar a little bit. It did open here in Chicago on the 19th. I think as of the show being recorded and published, it's still available in Chicago and in limited release around the country. Definitely recommend it. If you want to hear that full conversation, you can find it over at filmspotting.net or by subscribing to the Filmspotting podcast in in Apple Podcasts or Google or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, that conversation with a really good film spotting five at the end, too, I might add, is available in our feed right now. So we're going to try and do this again next week, two shows in a row. It's been a while, Adam, since we've uh, worked that hard. I no, I'm we... sorry. I'm on a monthly schedule now. <laughs> I hope you can handle One a it. month. <laughs> Will you come back for Fast and Furious Presents Double Ampersand, yeah. Hobbs and Shaw? Yeah, that'll bring You're you You're not going to keep me out of the studio. <laughs> Of course not. I think this is going to be a still processing review. We're yes. going to go oh, to this yeah. beast, this almost three hour oh, my goodness. screening and come right to the studio and hopefully, hopefully be able to wrestle with it in a way that offers something intelligible. Adam and Josh Ampersand <laughs> presents Fast and Furious, Hobbs and Shaw. I like it. It's going to be gold. We do like to highlight from time to time advanced screening passes or run of engagement passes we are giving away for our Chicago area listeners. You can find those by going to filmspotting.net slash events. And we have passes to give away right now to a Monday, July 29th screening of Mike Wallace is here. It's a new documentary about the famed 60 Minutes journalist. I am excited to see this movie. Hope to check it out before next week's show. Again, that's on the 29th and you can enter to win those passes at filmspotting.net slash events. Quick next picture show plug here. Tasha Robinson, one of the great critics on that show, guested with me last week here. They've got, this week, part two of their Print the Legend double feature. So they're covering Scorsese's new Bob Dylan story, The Rolling Thunder Review, and then they paired that with Todd Haynes' 1998 film Velvet Goldmine. Coming up on the next picture show, Tasha teased this as well. Fits with what we were just talking about, Mm -hmm. the art of self-defense. One of Tasha's favorite films of the year so far, she said. They paired that with Fight Club, a movie that we just wrestled with this year, Adam. We did, part of our 9 from 99 series, and I definitely think that will be a fruitful conversation. The next picture show drops every Tuesday at midnight. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I do want to give a quick shout-out to a listener, actually a couple listeners, because they both came to my rescue or offered to come to my rescue. I have been off long family vacation, went out to the East Coast with my family. Now, unlike you, Josh, I am not a good film spotting host. This is why more people come to your meetup, because I go to cities, apparently, and don't meet with our listeners. You hide. I hide. Unless you need something. Unless I need something. Great (laughs) transition, Josh. But I do just want to say, I do have more children than you, twice as many. And that's my excuse. Okay. And... We had a lot of packed into those nights, and I just knew Sarah was not going to abide me spending a whole night when we could be doing something as a family mm-hmm. with listeners. So I sacrificed. I sacrificed time with our audience. I think that's fair. But I did get to meet one listener, and it is kind of a funny story. I'm sitting in Boston, and I want to go to this restaurant that we've both been to. You recommended it, and it is wonderful, called Number 9 Park. And I'm thinking about the dress code because I've been there before, and it is a little more elegant. It's the one upscale restaurant we're going to on this whole vacation, leaving the kids at the Airbnb, and we're going to go Sure, leave them for that, but not for film spotting listeners. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And I'm thinking about it. Am I going to get away with wearing what I'm wearing, which is just jeans and a short sleeve 
film shirt. spotting t-shirt. Yeah, a film spotting you wear t-shirt. On vacation. But I didn't wear anything really classy, if you will, or dressy on vacation. Didn't pack anything. So I'm sitting there going, I feel so much more comfortable if I had a sport coat with these jeans. If only if only I could get a sport coat without having to go buy one. And then I thought about our listeners. We have listeners in Boston. All I got to do is tap into the network, tap into Film Spotting Nation, reached out to a couple listeners in the Boston area who I've never met with before. They both responded, both offered sport coats. Thank you to Tom and uh, also to Jim, Jim McDevitt, who I eventually did meet up with. And it was great. Got the sport coat. Dinner went well. The next day, I hung out with him at his bar, Bukowski's Tavern, and we had a great chat. Just a really nice guy, as you would expect. Talked a lot of film, talked a lot of Tarantino at the bar. So I did escape and had a one-person film spotting meetup. You are, I, I see this as abusing your podcasting celebrity power. It's just gone too far, Kempinar. <laughs> I am far. mad. I am mad with power. So while I was away, yes, as you mentioned, Tasha Robinson was in along with Angelica Jade Bastien, and they join you for a review of a movie that I now am not going to pronounce. I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> yes. I'm going to just say it's the follow-up. It's the follow-up by Ari Aster to Hereditary, <laughs> and you'll have to know what film I'm talking about because I'm shook. I am absolutely <laughs> shook that your pronunciation could in any way be deemed correct. Well, so sordid story behind my choice to say Midsommar. <laughs> I, oh, man. See, I saw it. I got to leave now. I saw how it was spelled, you know, M-I-D-S-O-M-M-A-R. Uh-huh. And I thought, I'm just going to throw this into the Forvo.com machine, which we use on occasion to try to pronounce, especially sure. words from other languages. And lo and behold, it spits back in Swedish something, I'm sure I'm still mispronouncing it, but a little closer to Midsommar than Midsommar. I get it. But, you know, so we're I in thought, Chicago, right? So I thought, you know, I'm going to honor the art. They yeah. chose to spell it that way. I'm going to uh-huh. at least try to pronounce it the way it should be. And um, it's caused a lot of trouble. Well, and actually, let me, let me just confess something. Really, it had been getting a little quiet on the pronunciation correction front. I had missed, true. I'd kind of missed the tweets and the emails <laughs> um, that people like to send. It has been a while. So I thought, you know what? I bet if I, if I do this, we'll, we'll really poke some bears. Yeah. A couple bears got A couple poked. bears. A couple of them. It is classic, though, because while I haven't listened to that whole show, you call it Midsommar. And then literally Mid- in the next moment, in the next moment, Sam plays a clip from the trailer. Yes, I know. I heard Where that. they say, welcome to I Midsummer." Heard, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I do know, based on reactions on Twitter, that apparently in some different podcasts, the filmmaker himself has referred to it that way. Yes, so, I saw As I that. said, I'm shook. Someone, someone came to my defense, my pronunciation defense on Twitter. We're just going to move on. <laughs> With Angelica and Tasha, you shared your top five horror movie performances, and you did Massacre Theater. That's the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. Or I should say, you made Tasha and Angelica do it for you. Yeah, just playing the good host, uh-huh. stepping out of the spotlight, giving them a chance to shine, and boy, did they ever. Well, if you missed it, let's hear a part of it. Are du bread? My body is frightened, but I am not. Ja, the thin is scammy bit. Wait a moment. Well, as I said, I, I want the two of them to perform the entire movie. Angelica was going for something specific uh, there, which maybe some listeners might be able to detect. Tasha, oh my goodness. I mean, I, I think we that was a high bar we set for her, and uh, she just leapt over it with grace, ease, <laughs> uh-huh. And correct Swedish. 
Well, if you know what film, Tasha and Angelica Massacre emailed the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is this coming Monday, July 29th. We'll select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce it on our next show. Uh, 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 here we go. AK-47, the very best there is. When you absolutely, positively got to kill every motherfucker in the room, except no substitutes. Nothing gets between me and my AK. That clip from Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown gets us into our poll results. We asked you a few weeks back, what is Tarantino's best film since Pulp Fiction? And when this question came up last week, Tasha and Angelica, Josh, they suggested that there is only one correct answer, which happens to be your favorite answer here, your chosen answer, which is Jackie Brown. They were adamant. I mean, didn't even give a thought to any other titles. I'm hoping that swayed some listeners in how they voted in the poll. Well, we will see. It doesn't look like Jackie Brown emerged victorious, but did very well, finished in the top three. We will give you the choices. In addition to Jackie Brown and Kill Bill, we have Death Proof, Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, and the Hateful Eight, obviously asking this before the release of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. How did it come out, Josh? Death Proof, I know it has its ardent fans, but came in last place here with only 1%. The Hateful Eight received 3% of the vote. Django Unchained got 7%, and then jumping up to those top three, yes, Jackie Brown with 22%, just lost by one percentage point to Kill Bill 1 and 2, but winning this with 42% of the vote was Inglorious Bastards. So this is complicated, but I looked at these results in relation to my Tarantino ranking over on Letterboxd, and taking Jackie Brown out of it, listeners nailed it for me. Death Proof to The Hateful Eight to Django to Kill Bill to Inglorious Bastards, which I do have behind one of the Kill Bill movies and Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. And I could probably reshuffle those top four every day of the week. But I think the order is pretty right now. There was a time on that list, and I recently just updated it, where I had Jackie Brown at the bottom. Didn't mean it wasn't a great film or I didn't really enjoy it. Just in terms of ranking Tarantino's films, I had it down at the bottom. But I did catch up with it just maybe a year ago. It was on TV one night, got sucked into watching it, realized just how... (laughs) great that film really is it's a good one and it's moved up my list a little bit now this is going to sound like a slight against jackie brown and it really is not i think it's a great film but i'm convinced that jackie brown is probably the correct answer for people like you josh who aren't quote unquote true tarantino fans oh i'm glad you said quote unquote i'm yeah. glad you made that distinction well you said you're a skeptic, skeptic. And yeah, for those yeah. of us who aren't skeptics complicated relationship with his movies maybe we lean to one of the more conventional choices there which i know i'm going to hear from people who say no i'm all in on everything and jackie's the best that's fine do not begrudge anyone who picks that or goes that route because it's a wonderful movie but i wonder if tasha and angelica would fit into that boat as well well let's hear from some jackie brown voters here in some feedback see what they say about it this is sean in murfreesboro tennessee as i type this comment inglorious bastards is running away with this poll but i will always vote jackie brown Bastards is fine, and the first act is undeniable, but Jackie Brown holds together better for its entire runtime. Add in the uniformly excellent ensemble and a more complicated, well-earned ending, and Jackie Brown comes out on top. Plus, its sexy, cool tone is harder to pull off successfully than manic violence and therefore the better achievement. I guess I'll take solace in the fact that, in Film Spotting Nation at least, 
we still agree that Nazis are the bad guys. <laughs> Sasha writes in, tragically overlooked and underappreciated, Death Proof is still the quintessential Tarantino masterpiece. Maybe you have to be of a certain age to fully appreciate even the idea to make a film that is a tribute to the grindhouse films of the 70s, including the actual animation advertising, projector miscues, worn-out film, and over-the-top fake previews. All his movies, including your beloved Jackie Brown, harken back to his love and, more importantly, understanding of this much-maligned genre. I think everyone should take 80 minutes out of their life to revisit Death Proof. As for myself, I will be inserting the Blu-ray momentarily, feet propped up, and a shot of chartreuse on the coffee table. A drink so good, they named a color after it. Here's Paul Bogosian. I agree with Josh and last week's co-host. Jackie Brown should glide to victory here as easily as Jackie on that people mover at the start of the film. I wonder if people are picking Inglorious Bastards with its three bravura sequences in mind and forgetting the ugly filler in between. Or maybe there are some who just like Tarantino most when he's at his most clever or at his most violent rather than at his most humane. You know what? You might just take those three scenes out, splice them together. It would still be my fourth favorite Tarantino film. Rory Dunn says, I always felt Jackie Brown was a point of no return for Tarantino. The film was restrained, well-paced, and unlike anything else he has ever done. It is also one of his least successful films commercially and in terms of awards. One can't help but wonder if the film had stuck as well in the public conscience if we would not have had to endure the torturous self-indulgence of The Hateful Eight. Jackie Brown is his best film, probably because it's the least Tarantino of them all, supporting my point. There you go. Here's Will... Krishika? Sure. I'm, I'm sorry, Will. I'm just going to call you Will Midsommar. I've got to go with Inglorious Bastards because it's Tarantino's clearest and most compelling expression of his film theory. Tarantino doesn't just love movies, he worships them. And as with any object of worship, there are rules involved. And here's the cardinal rule movies are fake. Movies are about fantasy and wish fulfillment, and this is, contrary to many opinions, a good thing. We could want things to happen on screen and cheer when they do that we would never allow to happen in real life, which is why it's okay for the bastards to be so gleefully violent and sadistic, because it's fake. It's a movie, and as Tarantino reminded us with Pulp Fiction, everything on screen is in quotes. Those aren't soldiers dying in a theater. Those are soldiers dying <laughs> in a theater. Lots of quotes. It's all fake and dress-up and play-acting. That's what's so great about movies. In Tarantino's book, should I say Bible, of all the crimes committed by the Nazis, the worst is making bad movies. <laughs> Joseph Goebbels is Tarantino's Judas, writhing at the center of movie hell. And writhing at the center of Inglorious Bastards is a terrible movie, the one starring the heroic Nazi officer and 100-plus dead Italians. Let's count the ways this movie within the movie is terrible. One, it is based on a true story. Two, it stars the actual hero of that story. Three, it is used by the Nazis to stir up political fervor and advance a truly evil cause. It breaks Tarantino's cardinal rule of movies in three different ways. And just as the Nazis in Raiders of the Lost Ark are destroyed by the Ark because they abuse the Ark, the Nazis and bastards are destroyed by the movies, literally, because they abuse movies. Break the cardinal rule and you will pay. Okay, Will, going deep there. And a lot of what he says, I think, would apply certainly to our discussion of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as well. I don't know whether or not Will is completely right that Tarantino totally deplores that movie at the center of Inglorious Bastards. I'd need to watch the film again, but I guarantee you he had a blast making that film within a film terrible or otherwise. Our new poll question available to you over at filmspotting.net is one that was inspired by the big announcement that came out of Comic-Con last week, phase four 
of the MCU, Josh. Just in time, you were ready. You were ready for another decade or so of dominance. Yeah, I mean, it's been how long MCU. since our last Marvel? Well, this movie. will keep us. This will keep us going. We'll be in business for at least <laughs> there you know, you go. five or ten years. These are film and TV projects. Maybe not that far off, but at least taking us through twenty twenty one. So our question was: Which MCU Phase Four film project? We left out the TV stuff. Are you most excited about? Black Widow. This is the first one that'll be up. May 2020. Stars Scarlett Johansson, of course, but also Florence Pugh from Midsommar. Rachel Weisz. And it's directed by Kate Shortland, who made Lore and Berlin Syndrome. Mm-hmm. I've seen neither of those. I've seen so Lore. I'm, okay. And what can you tell me? I'm, I'm definitely intrigued. Okay. I mean, she's certainly got a style in that cast. I really like Scarlett Johansson as Black Widow, but Florence Pugh and Rachel Weisz are obviously wonderful actresses as well. So I'm... I'm kind of in. I'm in on Black Widow. The Eternal is up next. This is slated for November 2020. Angelina Jolie, Kumail Nanjiani, Brian Tyree Henry, and Richard Madden all-star. Here's the big reason why film spotting listeners should be excited to see this movie. The Writer, which was our runner-up for the film spotting Golden Brick, just got beat out by Minding the Gap. I think our last Brick Award, right, Josh? Yep. A film that we both loved, directed by Chloe Zhao, and she's been tapped by... Marvel to direct the Eternals. So, yes, in a way that should excite film spotting listeners, and maybe we'll get into this when we cast our own votes, in a way it might depress them. All right, here's the third one coming up here. Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. This is February 2021. Aquafina in this, along with Tony Leung and Simu Liu, directed by Dustin Daniel Cretton, who made Short Term 12 and The Glass Castle. Okay. Tony Leung. Don't know anything Aquafina are great. about this property at all. I think this might be the first time I had heard of it. But yeah, interesting cast for sure. For sure. Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, the one based on title alone I don't want to see, even though <laughs> even though I like the first Doctor Strange. Scheduled for May 2021. It's being billed as the MCU's first horror film. Director Scott Derrickson is back. He also made the horror film Sinister. Benedict Cumberbatch returns, and Elizabeth Olsen will also be in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. We could all use some more Thor. I think that's agreed upon. How about Thor, Love, and Thunder? That's in November 2021. Chris Hemsworth will be back, as will Natalie Portman and Tessa Thompson. The description here, Portman as Thor, a storyline based on a recent run of the Thor comic by writer Jason Aaron returning will be director Taika Waititi. Now, we're also going to throw Blade in here. I think this might officially be phase Sam's cheating five. in his own I, poll question. Okay. Um, we're going to put it in because it's news and also because Mahershala Ali has been named as the star taking over, Love of course, from Wesley Snipes. So, yeah, we've got some early votes in and Taika's Thor, healthy lead, Probably not a surprise. Jow's Eternals is a distant second. And this gets us to how I'm thinking about this. Um, I feel like we've tipped the scales. Like early on, Waititi signed on for the Thor film and it's exciting. It's like, okay, this is someone with a fresh perspective and vision. Let's see what they do with a Thor film. And Ragnarok had definitely had its own vibe and that was great. But if we're going to, if Marvel's going to suck up every promising young director with vision. Um, I'm glad because if I see that movie, it'll likely be more interesting than if they just hired a hack. But I'm starting to regret all these movies we're never going to get because these filmmakers are giving their time to Marvel. Obviously, their choice and they may have their own reasons for doing it. More power to them. 
But I think when I'm going to vote on, I think it's going to affect my vote in this poll, at least. I'm going to steer away from those. Like, I, I'm glad YTD did it. I kind of wish he did. And I know he's got, what is it, coming out shortly here. Jojo Rabbit. Jojo Rabbit, yeah. So maybe he's going to juggle it. I'm going to vote. I'm going to vote for Doctor Strange just because. Really? Yeah, I feel like, and I like the first one too, but I feel like Derrickson is in his sweet spot. You know, like he 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 really lobbied to make that for first Doctor Strange film. I think it is unique from a lot of other Marvel films in some ways. I love this idea of them looking at it as a straight up horror film. Maybe this is a way to pump some life into what we're all being subjected to is let's look at each of these and go for a specific genre and embrace what that allows us to do. And if Doctor Strange is really going to be a straight up horror film, this multiverse of madness, I think I'm going to vote that way right now. You just devoted more time. To this poll question that yes. we have to some MCU movies, Josh. Wow. <laughs> I appreciate that. Was that phase six of my answer? <laughs> I think it was. I liked your thoroughness. It occurs to me that if I had to pick the one that I think probably has the best chance at being a good movie, I might go Black Widow. Honestly, with that okay. cast and with Johansson in that lead role and Shortland as the director, that's probably where I would go if I was just putting money down. I hear everything you're saying, and fundamentally, I agree with everything you're saying. I'd kind of like to see someone like YTT move on, but that's not going to affect my vote here, I think. I am going to go with the Eternals because I'm hoping, I'm not necessarily endorsing completely the fact that Zhao is making this film as opposed to something else more let's say, like the writer, I might prefer that. But maybe this is going to open doors and it's going to ensure that she is going to get to continue to make the movies she wants to make. And just like we were fascinated by what Waititi would do and ultimately did do with Thor, taking it in a completely different direction, seeing what someone like Zhao does with the Eternals with an MCU product, I think is just too intriguing for me to overlook. So I'm going to go ahead and vote for the Eternals, even though, as we said, People are excited about the prospect of another Waititi Thor movie. That said, maybe they're also excited about the fact that Natalie Portman is playing Thor in that film. Could be a combination. We'd love to hear your vote. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. Do you know who I am, Mr. Woolley? I give up. Who are you? The Antichrist. You got me in a vendetta kind of mood. You tell the angels in heaven you never seen evil so singularly personified as you did in the face of the man who killed you. My name is Vincent Cocardi. We're hoping it doesn't put Tarantino in a vendetta kind of mood that we did not consider characters he created for 1993's True Romance for our top 10 Tarantino characters, which we get to now. That was Christopher Walken, of course, and Dennis Hopper. True Romance was written by Tarantino, of course, directed by Tony Scott. And if we leave out the Tarantino written but not directed films, that also means no From Dusk Till Dawn or Natural Born Killers. Now, in fairness to Sam, and I think we should address this because there are probably listeners out there, too, who are disappointed that we're not considering those— we never did really collectively have a conversation about this. I just expressed that I felt like keeping it focused, this is already hard enough, keeping it focused on the films that fit into this oeuvre of nine films, yeah. like we talked about with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, seemed to be the cleanest for me. Sometimes as a producer, Sam wants to make things a little messier, and I completely <laughs> understand that impulse. But that is where we landed and you can take issue with it if you choose. Yeah, it was for me, honestly, it was more of a practical matter. It was that it was cleaner. It was easier to set those aside. And I think, too, I don't think I would have had 
any of those characters in one of my top ten slots. Nothing from anyway. from Dusk Till um, Dawn. And not a and you know, not, not a dismissal of those characters. Either. Just again, speaks to the richness, mm-hmm. the possibilities in his directorial film work. Sure. So. so before we jump in, a great setup here I think comes to us from a listener named Nick Doolittle in Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic. Recently discovered the show, and I love that he picked a character here really off the beaten path, but one that I'm sure a lot of listeners do have fondness for. He says, I feel that Hattori Hanzo, the master swordsmith of the Kill Bill franchise, is more than worthy of a spot on this list. Aside from the fact that he is a deeply intriguing and nuanced mentor trope, one that would undoubtedly warrant a standalone film exploring his backstory, his character encapsulates the essence of Tarantino filmmaking. Perhaps Quentin sees a bit of himself in Hanzo. Consider the following. His craft, katana making, is precise, rich in style and identity, and somehow beautifully vulgar in the deepest sense. Hanzo typifies the conflict, often evoked in Tarantino films, between stylistic beauty and extreme violence. He verbally expresses the internal tension he feels between his instruments of death and the artistic expression slash personal significance of the craft. He's not made a sword in 25 years for this reason. Yet he still has dozens enshrined in his attic. The tension is real. Third point here. Hanzo transitions magnificently between moments of endearing lightheartedness, sharp intensity, and genuine hilarity. Much like your typical Tarantino film. Nick's fourth point. He clearly has an enormous ego, as seen when he insists that his most recent sword would cut God. But I don't mind at all because his craft warrants it. Reminiscent of Brad Pitt's line, I think this just might be my masterpiece. Hattori Hanzo is the quintessential grandfather figure of the Tarantino universe, Nick argues. He's endearing, funny, stern, and wise. More importantly, his characteristics reflect the universe at large. And there's something mysteriously apocal about him that allows for the thought that perhaps the rest of the Tarantino canon is in some strange way his spiritual offspring. And Nick concludes with this hashtag, Hattori Hanzo for film spotting top 10 2019. (laughs) Make it a trend. Yeah, make it trend, everybody. I don't think that's quite going to happen, but I think we got some nice perspective there, a great way to frame Tarantino and these characters. As we said, we did extend this from the usual film spotting top five into a top 10 Really, I suppose, out of some reverence and appreciation for Tarantino and this body of work and these great characters. We had four overlaps in our top 10 when we shared our lists, and we will get to those kind of as we go through it. We are going to be kind of all over the place here. We don't have as much of a set, rigid structure. Essentially, what we did, we each ranked our top 10. We picked five each that we want to focus on, or close to five each. There might be one that we definitely share near the top, and we'll kind of go through our picks. And of course, we'll do a full recap of the top 10. We may get to some of the picks as we go through the ones we go into more detail about, but we'll definitely share the full top 10s at the end. And of course, you can find the full top 10s over at filmspotting.net if you just click on lists at the top of the page. So Josh, you're going to share the five you decided to focus on and where you have them ranked. How did you set about to rank these characters? Well, opening it up to 10 helped in a way that it gave me this broader landscape to look at. And once I, I decided, okay, here's here's the 10 I know are essential to Tarantino's films. And I started to see some patterns emerge among that 10. So it seems to me there are character types that Tarantino returns to, specific personalities, personas that he has in almost every film. And so the five that I want to talk about here are from my 10, they're each an example of a different type. So I'm I'm going to throw a little bit of another wrinkle into it, but it helped me kind of think about and prioritize who I really wanted to give the attention to. Now, the first type is the jester. 
And the jester, I would say, is the scene stealer, the goofball, more often than not, the commenter on the outrageous action we see. And a lot of times those comments will include some of Tarantino's most memorable lines. Uh, Though they're standing, though the jester stands apart when they do get involved in the movie, sometimes it's to introduce another level of chaos. Of course, the jester is also often a capital C character. Mm. And I know, Adam, you've described Brad Pitt <laughs> I as know where taking we're going those now. sorts of parts. Uh, he certainly has done that for Tarantino, right? There are two jesters he's played. Here's for Sam, Floyd in True Romance. And of course, Lieutenant Aldo Rain in Inglorious Bastards. He's my pick here. The first character I want to talk about. He's actually number nine on my one through ten list. My name is Lieutenant Aldo Rain, and I'm putting together a special team. And I need me eight soldiers. Eight Jewish American soldiers. Rain probably has more of an active role than other Tarantino jesters. I'll mention them at the end here. But I think I'd argue that Rain's big speech serves as a commentary of sorts. It's a commentary certainly on the larger action, World War II, but also a commentary and slash homage to all the inspirational battle speeches in previous war films. Now, I'm the direct descendant of the mountain man Jim Bridger. That means I got a little engine in me. And our battle plan will be that of an Apache resistance. We will be cruel to the Germans. And through our cruelty, they will know who we are. And they will find the evidence of our cruelty in the disemboweled, dismembered, and disfigured bodies of their brothers we leave behind us. And the German won't be able to help themselves. But imagine the cruelty their brothers endured at our hands and our boot heels. And the edge of our knives. Of course, Rain has some of Bastard's most memorable lines of dialogue in that speech. And he definitely goes on to introduce all sorts of chaos as the film goes on. So he's my top Tarantino jester, as I said, number nine overall. My other jesters, I'd put Nice Guy Eddie, played by Chris Penn in Reservoir Dogs there. Uh, This one, I think, is going to come up later. So I'll just toss her out real quick. Daisy. Daisy Domergue, played by Jennifer Jason Leigh in Hateful Eight. And then I think Tarantino himself is, I almost went with him on this list as Jimmy in Pulp Fiction, as that, the commentator, but I thought, you know, he's too much maybe the clown. Mm. And I know he's also hated by a lot of- Yeah, you forgot unwatchable. A lot of Tarantino (laughs) fans can't stand Jimmy. I find him amusing. I think he works as a clown slash jester, but my pick, my character. He definitely fits into your scheme. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Character is Aldo Rain. So I'm going to stick with Inglorious Bastards for my first pick, actually my number eight. I'm not going to go with Pitt. And before I name the pick, I will say that I tried very much to frame this similarly to you, to look for and try to identify those character types. And it's funny, you mentioned the words personality and personas because the three I came up with all start with a letter P. And I think we might touch on those as we get through our list. But I didn't necessarily confine myself to those types. I did think more about characters who offer really iconic, memorable moments in the film. Whether they're the lead character or not, you kind of touch on it. Scene stealers, people who you really remember and certain lines you remember because of the way they deliver them. Also, I thought about whether or not I could imagine the movie without that character Mm -hmm. or without that performance somehow. And I also did consider, I think Nick maybe touched on this as well, whether or not I would want to see a movie where they were, if they were the supporting character, what if they were the main character? But I want to watch a Tarantino movie that was just all about them. So that's what I considered with my list. And I would definitely say I'd watch an entire movie about Shoshana from Inglorious Bastards, played by Melanie Laurent. She is the character we meet at the very beginning. I certainly didn't recognize that 
it's the woman we meet later until we get the flashback because she's running away from the dairy farm where she's been hiding the Jew hunter. Colonel Hans Landa is above her as she's hiding in the cellar with her family. Everyone dies except she runs out and gets away with her face covered in blood and we can't totally maybe recognize her there and then we get down the road a few years and she now runs a movie theater in paris i was listening recently to the rewatchables podcast they devoted a show to inglorious bastards and chris ryan summed up this movie but also this kind of phase we're in with tarantino's career right now as him expressing historical rage through fantasy and obviously specifically through this medium of film and Shoshana embodies that rage and that fantasy fulfillment. She's not distanced obviously from the Holocaust as a character, the way Quentin Tarantino is or the way we are as viewers, not by experience, not by time. This is her experience. She lived through being hunted down, having her family murdered in front of her and It was just a few years prior. So it's all very prevalent, that trauma in her mind. And cinema becomes her escape because she fled to that and has that theater to anchor her. But also, as we see in the film, it becomes her vehicle for revenge on Londa and the Nazis. She gets a great, great dramatic death scene with Daniel Bruhl's Frederick Zoller character. Of course, there's the amazing cat people sequence in that red dress preparing for the premiere that night. But it is that scene where she first meets Londa that really stands out in my mind. She's having lunch with Frederick and with Goebbels, happens to be at the table. And as Londa walks up behind her and someone says his name, Laurent's inhale as she gasps and she looks up as he introduces himself and kisses her hand. That's when the flashback kicks into her running away and him firing at her. And when we come back to this conversation at lunch, Londa is telling her he wants to question her. He's the head of security. This big premiere is going to be at her theater. And the way Tarantino frames that whole conversation is so brilliant, or at least the start of the conversation about a minute's worth is the camera is just on her with Londa behind her standing up so we only see kind of the middle of his body and he's above her the whole time and in this moment she's powerless again she's trapped by him she's looking up at him just as she would have done as a girl in that cellar at the dairy farmer's house and one of those tragic bits of coincidence that of course isn't coincidence that tarantino would put it in the script he orders a glass of milk for her when he orders the strudel But for the rest of the conversation, they are kind of on equal ground. It becomes kind of a classic shot, reverse shot conversation between two people. And the way she keeps her cool, even at the end, as he really studies her and examines her because he thinks he might remember her, that stands out in my mind. But the real moment is then when he finally leaves and she exhales. We finally get this release as if she's been holding in, not just her breath, but been holding in this pain the whole time. And... As we come to see, she's doing the same thing the bastards are. She has the same personal mission, ultimately. There's all this plotting going on and all this death that comes with the bastards. She almost single-handedly pulls it off. That's another quality so many Tarantino characters have is, or they have to rise to this occasion. They have to be cool under pressure. Yeah. And some of them just exude that naturally, like Jules, for instance. But some of them have to, are pushed into that moment and have to find that uh, way of, uh, as you said, keeping her cool. And Laurent definitely has that Mm -hmm. in that scene for sure. 
All right, my next character is my example of the Tarantino type I have the most trouble with, but you can't talk about Tarantino without discussing the seductive sadist. Okay. And this is the charismatic, often smooth-talking figure who lulls you in, then delivers the pain, and here's the Tarantino bit, makes the violence mesmerizing because we're we're implicated somehow because we found them so charming. Probably the foremost we've already touched on, Seductive Sadist, is Christoph Waltz's Hans Landa. I have him on my top 10 at number seven. But I've got this guy at number three. It's Mr. Blonde, Michael Madsen from Reservoir Dogs, sort of the urtext for this type, right? It's right there at the beginning. We see this sort of guy in a Tarantino film. And of course, we have to talk about the scene of him torturing the cop to Steeler's wheels stuck in the middle with you. I think that was probably our first indication that being a Tarantino fan was going to be a very morally murky proposition. You ever listen to Kay Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s? It's my personal favorite. You can't question the way Tarantino and Madsen make this seductive. You can't resist it, um, but also at the same time revolting. Madsen gives, well, Madsen just has these soft eyes and features, I think, that belie the cruelty behind them. The dancing bit just signifies, lets you know this guy's having fun. I mean, whatever you're experiencing, this guy's having fun. And the camera work, too, makes it fun until, of course, that crucial decision where uh, the camera looks away from what's going on. Mr. Blonde is just the ultimate monster. You can't stop watching. I think the hesitation I have, the, the reason I keep wrestling with these is whether or not a character like this is really challenging the audience um, to question why they're entertained or sometimes to me, it just feels like entrapment. It feels like we're we're getting this stuff that um, the filmmaker knows we can't resist and then kind of pulling the bag up, pulling us up in the net and saying, I've got you now because I gave you this stuff that's, hmm. that's really kind of sexy. And I never seductive. questioned that with Reservoir Dogs, though. What I really mean, never. What? Well, I never felt as if Tarantino was provoking me in that way, provoking me with the violence, yeah, but not provoking me in an intellectual way to consider my complicity in it. I never felt that until Inglorious Bastards. I think. I, I think in yeah, I, you're right. You're right. That's where. Well, that goes back to my central issue with Inglorious right. Bastards. That's where he kind of felt the burden of doing that intellectualizing. But I think it's inherently kind of just a natural part of his filmmaking there at the start. So, yeah, I mean, this is this is something that we do continue to wrestle with, with Hans Landa as well, with um, Here's the Other Seductive Sadist. Cliff Booth in Hollywood, I think, does reveal himself in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to be one of these characters. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's Calvin Candy in Django is one. And here's one I'm not so sure about. Samuel L. Jackson's house slave, Stephen in Django Unchained. I have him on my top 10. He's actually number 10. Of course, the distinction here is he's also a victim, right? He's a victim of this uh, uh, racist oppression and slavery yes. himself, but he's also in some ways the most sadistic character in the film. For sure. So that's that's a really troubling one. But I'm going with Mr. Blonde here. He's actually my number three on my one through 10 list. So he's one of our four overlaps. I have him at number seven. I love what Michael Madsen does with that character upon rewatching Reservoir Dogs. It was one of the performances and one of the characters that did really stand out to me. And the word I would use, I said I had a P word. I do like the seductive sadist. You could also go with the S word sociopath because there are a few of those in his films. But 
my P word was psychopath. Mm. And that's what he is. And I think if you do frame it that way, it's a little bit different because I don't think Cliff Booth could ever fit into that. In other words, mm. he's got within him. You're absolutely right. Cliff Pitt's character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has within him that capacity for violence. But unlike a character like Mr. Blonde, I don't think he's looking for the opportunity. No to use it or That's to true. explore it like he's he's willing to just float through life and, yes, and be happy go lucky very much and, so. and the coolest guy in the room but when you provoke him that status may come out a little bit so my next pick is one i know you will appreciate josh in fact i think it's another overlap my number six is max cherry the bail bondsman yeah. from jackie brown obviously here listeners could write in and complain because we're using an elmore leonard creation technically though my understanding is and i don't know much about this because i haven't read the book tarantino definitely turns max cherry into his own character makes him a different character than we get in the original leonard story but part of what makes quentin tarantino's film so thrilling is rediscovering actors and sometimes it's discovering actors depending on your age and the level of cinephile you're at when you're making the discovery so when jackie brown came out I hadn't seen Medium Cool yet, the Haskell Wexler film that Robert Forster stars in. Of course, I had seen The Black Hole about 70 times when I was five years old, but I had no recollection of Forster in it. So seeing Robert Forster's face on screen was new to me. And there are so many talkers in the Tarantino universe, people who can't shut up, constantly imposing their thoughts and will on other people. And Max really stands out as the quiet observer. He's watching the heist unfold at the shopping mall, seeing all the players at work later in the film. That great first encounter with Jackie, the gorgeous back and forth cutting between Forster's face and Jackie in the darkness walking towards him. It's brown. Yes. I'm Max Cherry. I'm Bill Bondsman. I could give you a lift home if you like. We talk about discovering actors through Tarantino's films. We also discover a lot of great musicians and great songs. I had never heard or heard of Natural High by Bloodstone, which accompanies that scene as Jackie walks toward Max. But he watches, he studies. Throughout the whole film, he offers information when he needs to, but mostly he listens in contrast to Ray Nicolette, the Michael Keaton character, in contrast to Ordell, of course, Samuel L. Jackson's character, and anyone else in her life. He doesn't really have an angle. He doesn't have an agenda. He's not trying to use her for anything. His purposes, and yes, he is drawn to her. He's attracted to her, but his purposes are pure. And Tarantino recognizes that he doesn't have to do anything or ask Forster to do anything more than be on camera. And we'll see it in his face, in that weathered face with those forehead lines and the creases under the eyes, kind of similar to what we get with Pitt and DiCaprio to an extent in Hollywood. We just know by looking at that face that he's seen some things and we recognize his reaction to Jackie. If you go back and watch it, you can see how startled he is by her, how taken aback by her he is just by watching because he doesn't give away or betray an expression necessarily. But you see just in his eyes and the way his mouth 
twitches ever so slightly as she walks into the light and through the gate that he's been knocked off balance by her a little bit, even though he's absolutely rock steady. That whole performance is a masterclass in minimalism. He's so good. He's number six on my list overall. And yeah, I'll get to my own sort of defense for including an Elmar Leonard character, supposedly, when I have my Jackie Brown pick in a little bit here. For now, though, let's talk about Vincent Vega. John Travolta in Pulp Fiction, this sad sack, low-key, somewhat mopey and doomed partner to Samuel Jackson's jewels. Uh, a lot of people suffer terribly in Pulp Fiction, but for some reason, I'm most moved by Vincent's story arc. He seems, he just seems to be moving in slow motion, emotionally and physically, even in that famous dance sequence with Uma Thurman's Mia Wallace. I think that's part of it. It's part of the, it's not any sort of frantic or even really joyful dancing. It's, uh, it's just pure Travolta, but it has this slow groove to it. There's a melancholy leaning towards sadness, I think, in his movements. It could be mistaken for cool, I think those two things can look the same a lot, but it can also just be sadness. Don't you hate that? Hate what? Uncomfortable silences. Why do we feel it's necessary to yak about bullshit in order to be comfortable? I don't know. That's a good question. That's when you know you found somebody really special. And you can just shut the fuck up for a minute, comfortably share silence. Well, I don't think we're quite there yet, but don't feel bad. We just met each other. I'll tell you what. I'm going to go to the bathroom and powder my nose. And you sit here and think of something to say. I'll do that. So well-known, as you were just talking about, Adam, um, casting Travolta resuscitated his career. Mm -hmm. And his performance, I think, as Vincent has the feel of a has-been who's suddenly thrust back into the spotlight. You get a sense that Vincent is this this hitman who's on the downside of his career or soon to be heading there. But we're seeing him in what turns out to be this one last momentous job, you know, in ways that even he's not anticipating. So the character type I'm talking about here is is just that. It's a sad sack. I think Tarantino has a lot of sad sacks like this. Uh, these characters are, they're a bit bewildered by life in general, certainly by the stories that Tarantino has dropped them into. And they walk through it with this low-level depression, almost. Often substance abuse is is also involved. Certainly that's the case with Vincent. I think you could make the case it's with his dance partner too. Mia Wallace strikes me as someone with a similar presence and disposition. I think that uh, there's another one in Pulp Fiction, Bruce Willis's Butch. As you were talking about the quietness of Max Cherry, Robert Forster's Max Cherry, Maybe there's a little bit of sad sack element to that Mm -hmm. as well. And I think definitely we covered this in our review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that Rick Dalton, Leonardo DiCaprio's Rick Dalton suffers from this sort of sadness. So I I almost considered putting Rick on this list, actually, except we just saw it last night and I kind of had my picks lined up. So I think you articulated that very well because my, I will have to admit, Josh, my first thought when I started putting this list together was, who would ever put Vincent Vega in their top 10? Really? That was my thought, honestly. Really? I just felt, and maybe this, again, is just kind of falling prey to conventional wisdom on Tarantino or something has happened over time where 
somehow now we've all started to underrate Travolta's performance a little bit. But I'm so mesmerized by characters like Jules in Pulp Fiction, by other characters that we're touching on and are going to touch on, that I think I have maybe taken for granted what Travolta does as Vince Vega and how interesting that character is just to watch yeah. in that film, the way he the way he sort of laconically moves through everything. Do you think it's maybe because of just where Travolta's career went? I mean, it was... I think I'm guilty of that, too. He had other high points, I he think, did. but it was rocky. And, you know, just where he is in public perception yes. now, I think maybe it's a little easier to kind of downplay um, how significant he I was agree. in Pulp Fiction. So I'm not sure exactly where this character would fit into your plan, but this is certainly another character within the same movie as Shoshana and Glorious Bastards who has to rise to an occasion, who's being picked in this case and accepts a mission to do something that he maybe isn't fully equipped for, and he almost pulls it off. You know I'm picking Michael Fassbender as Lieutenant Archie Hickox <laughs> in Inglorious Bastards for my top 10 Tarantino characters, especially when he's playing a film critic, for God's sake. This was not me discovering Fassbender, as it was for probably a lot of people. It definitely helped really establish him in cinephile circles. If you had seen Hunger before that, the Steve McQueen debut, you knew that Michael Fassbender already was the real deal. Doing a little bit of research today, apparently one of Tarantino's regular collaborators, Tim Roth, was in talks originally to play this role. Simon Pegg at one point was cast as Archie Hickox and had to to drop out. I know, and had to drop out for scheduling reasons. And the other thing I learned is that Fassbender apparently wanted to play Hans Landa. That was who he wanted to audition for. I can see that. Yeah, and Tarantino said, you're... You're not German enough. There's no way you're German enough to play my Londa. And of course, went with Christoph Waltz. I think it worked out pretty well for both actors and for us as viewers. But he's the key player. And I'll say what is simply one of Tarantino's greatest scenes, La Louisiane Tavern from Inglorious Bastards. I've talked about this notion a lot. I won't rehash it completely here. But Tarantino's most common recurring theme for me is performance. And we touched on at the beginning of the show that we saw Twelfth Night this weekend outdoors at American Players Theater in Wisconsin. And that play, to a lesser extent than some others we've seen there, but it has this element to it. Like every Shakespeare comedy I've ever seen, they all involve some degree of a play within a play. Either acting troops appear or characters take on the role of actor. They create scenes to fool other characters or to try to suss out a character's true feelings. There's always, at least in these Shakespearean comedies, an element of drawing our attention to the pleasure and the truth that can be gleaned from these plays within a play. And... I think Tarantino is Shakespearean in that way, in addition to his love of language as well. Just some examples. Reservoir Dogs, Mr. Orange as a cop, going undercover, all acting. And if he's a bad actor, he's going to die before he even does get shot during the robbery. If he can't stay in character after getting shot, he's going to die before the wound in his stomach potentially gets him. The Bastards opening, we've already talked about. Hans Landa, he knows. He knows they're there. He's just torturing the farmer. It's all an act. It's all a play for his own amusement. The Hateful Eight, the whole film is basically the tavern sequence I'm talking about extended over the course of an entire film. And then even Jackie Brown, and maybe this is why it's one of my favorite moments in Jackie Brown, even though I didn't think about it in these terms intellectually. I love the moment when she has to rehearse her line to Ardell at Max's office, and she pulls the gun from the desk drawer like four different times. She has to rehearse to get herself into character in that moment. I could go 
on and on. There's even an inherent performative aspect to the way the bastards kill and that they're all predominantly Jewish and they're trying to send a message to the Nazis. So point being, staying in character and the consequences of breaking character is paramount in Tarantino's work. And as good as Archie is pretending to be a German officer, he does ultimately reveal himself. He betrays himself with a tell, putting his three fingers in the air when he orders drinks. And in that moment, Tarantino cuts to a shot that's kind of over his shoulder, and we see Fassbender only in profile. He doesn't know yet what we know because we're looking at the other German officer's face and the way he reacts to that moment and the awkward smile. There is some recognition there. When we cut back to Archie's face, now he's looking up at that officer. That's when it occurs to him that something is amiss. And in that moment, we watch on Fassbender's face the realization that he's a dead man. They're, they're doomed. This is not going to play out the way they hoped. And from there, another layer of performance begins because after that revelation, the Nazi calls him on it. And it's all just a matter now of prolonging the inevitable. He can't avoid death. Maybe he can still save the mission. That becomes important. But in this moment, for me, he almost becomes like the knight in the seventh seal where he's confronting certain death, but somehow still hoping there's a move on the chessboard. And you see in Fassbender's eyes and his posture, the fear and the desperation, but still needing for these few more moments to stay in character until there's truly no longer the point. He accepts his fate. He quits the role. He decides to stop acting. He stops speaking German with that all-time great Tarantino line. Well, if this is it, old boy, I hope you don't mind if I go out speaking to Kings. By all means, Captain. That line itself is even quintessentially Quentin Tarantino because it's about language. Revealing yourself is speaking in your own tongue, in your own voice, and even in his final moments, he feels compelled to express himself. Yeah, and, and in your description too, it's like the the moment he's letting the curtain drop. That's right? it. It's just it's it's closing. Yep. It is a fantastic scene, and wow, it's been too long since there's been some Fassbender love on it this has. show. I mean, it was it every has. It week. Felt good every week it for felt a while. Good. <laughs> good. I'm glad you could get that out. All right, so we've been jumping around a lot, uh, which means we're not done. But I'm at my number one Tarantino character. Okay. And yes, my number one Quentin Tarantino character is technically an Elmore Leonard character, but here's why. And you've already kind of touched on this a little bit, Adam. I wanted to highlight a crucial element, not only of creating characters, but Tarantino as a filmmaker, and that is the casting. I mean, I know he gets a lot of praise for that, but often it falls behind the writing or the camera work or the music choices, these sorts of things. But think about how crucial and how perfect. You've mentioned a few cases where someone else was considered, and, and we've. it's hard to imagine a movie if he'd made a different choice, how perfect his choices are. And so, just like with Travolta, another case of seeing uh, the potential in an actor that the larger movie world had forgotten, the potential to put them in the perfect part that's what he did with Pam Greer as Jackie Brown. Long before this, of course, she had reigned in various black exploitation films. We talked about her in Coffee, Adam, as part of our black exploitation marathon. I think we did our best to, to, you know, describe how she rose above the exploitation elements in that movie. Jackie Brown is different, a different film altogether from something like that. It's Tarantino's. I used to think of it as his most mature work, maybe Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in some ways has surpassed that description, 
But definitely in terms of Greer, he's fully capitalizing on the no-nonsense nobility that was always a part of her gifts as a screen presence. He makes, that's her defining quality, and he puts it at the forefront here. The way I see it, you and me got one motherfucking thing to talk about. One thing. And that's what you are willing to do for me. I can get you a lawyer. Oh, no, let's be realistic. Now, sooner or later, they're going to get around to offering me a plea deal. And you know that. That's why you came here to kill me. <laughs> I ain't come over here oh, to no, kill you. Okay. It's okay. Now, I forgive you. Now, let's say, if I tell on you, I walk. If I don't, I go to jail. Uh-huh. I want $100,000 in an escrow account in my name if I'm convicted up to you or put on probation. Now, if I have to do more than a year, you pay another $100,000. Tarantino definitely does tap into that iconic badassery in Jackie Brown, that element. But I think he also gives Jackie a fully human complexity. And especially in those moments, you've described a few of them, Adam, with Robert Forster's Max Cherry. I think in those scenes, when the plot falls away, we just sit with the characters, we observe them in their everyday life, we see this uh, relaxed woman living a quiet life. And what that does for us is it gives a sense of the the very life that she's so desperate to preserve. So what Tarantino type is Jackie Brown? I think you've kind of already described this type a little bit in how you described Archie, but the name I'm giving this type is The Queen. This is a rare type. It's someone who's thrown into the chaos of a Tarantino movie and responds by taking control of the situation. They corral the chaos. Mm. They reign over it. To use your words, they rise to the occasion. So there are other queens like uh, the Kill Bill films. You've got to look at Uma Thurman's Beatrix Kiddo, I think. But also maybe Lucy Liu's Oren Ishii could be considered a queen. Archie, yes. And Shoshana in <laughs> Inglorious Bastards both operate this way. And I'm going to throw in Jamie Foxx's Django as a queen. I mean, he dresses like one in that dandyish royal blue outfit when he finally gets to buy his own clothes. I love the blue bows on those shoes. And he certainly takes charge of his situation by the end of that film. So Pam Greer, though, her Jackie Brown, that's my favorite queen, my number one Tarantino character. All I have to say after that is Michael Fassbender could be my queen anytime. (laughs) Good. I'm glad. I have nothing to say about your pick, which is fabulous. Jackie (laughs) Brown is a great choice. My next Tarantino pick, actually my number three overall Tarantino character is another character from Reservoir Dogs. It is Mr. Pink. And this is one of the categories I did come up with. I mentioned P words. I'm going to get to another one in a moment. The one I already said was the psychopath. And this is a double P category, courtesy of our producer, Sam Van Halgren, who called Mr. Pink the pitiless pragmatist. I was just going to go with pragmatist, but I love the addition of pitiless because it really does apply. And he's the supporting character. I mentioned that I was thinking about characters who steal a movie. And as Reservoir Dogs was our introduction to Tarantino, I think he was the character and the performance by Steve Buscemi who first stole a Tarantino movie for me and probably for most people who watch. Everybody I knew came out of Reservoir Dogs talking about Mr. Pink, talking about Buscemi, who I had never seen before on screen. We weren't talking about Keitel or Roth, their performances, their characters, their relationship. We were quoting lines from Mr. Pink about why he has to be named Mr. Pink. How about if I'm Mr. Purple? I mean, that sounds good to me. I'll, I'll be Mr. Purple. 
and how he doesn't want to tip anybody. You know what this is? It's the world's smallest violin playing just for the waitresses. That was what we were all thinking about. And on that first viewing, it's easy to just kind of see him as a sort of jester character. And there's that element to go back to your category. I thought about him. Right. He's a jester and a commenter. I'll get to that in a second. But he is more than that, which is something I discovered on our Sacred Cow viewing a few years ago. He really does have a worldview that he doesn't waver from. And you hear it when he's talking about tipping, how he says this tipping automatically, it's for the birds. He says, as far as I'm concerned, they're just doing their job. And I think the best summation of that pitiless pragmatism is, he says, I don't want to kill anybody, but if I got to get out the door and you're standing in my way, one way or the other, you're getting out of my way. That absolutely nails it. A waitress is just doing their job. It's what they signed up for. They don't get anything extra. He has no sentimentality about it, how little they might make. They got mouths to feed at home. Doesn't matter. It's their job. Now, where the commenter part comes in is he's always the guy urging the other members of the crew to act like him. He's always pointing out all the things they're doing wrong or the things they should be doing. And he always or multiple times uses the phrase act like a professional be a professional, which is what he is. He's that pragmatic professional. He's the only guy who reads all the signs and knows for sure that it was all a setup, that they've got a rat in their midst because he thinks without bias. He's the only one who thinks without any kind of bias, without emotion. He's not driven by loyalty or any sense of love like Mr. White, Keitel. He's not into this idea of torturing the cops, can't restrain himself from those actions like Mr. Blonde. He just wants to figure out who the rat is and get out of there alive. That's all he wants. There's a real integrity to Mr. Pink, and it is fitting that he's the only one who gets away. And there's some debate about that, whether or not he does truly get away. We just hear what happens at the end of the movie. But he is the only guy left standing appropriately at the end of the film who walks out of there with the diamonds in keeping with his character and his worldview. I will note as part of this discussion that Ordell... Samuel L. Jackson's character in Jackie Brown, who also made my top 10. He's the combination, Tarantino, pitiless, pragmatist, psychopath. Because Mm -hmm. I do see in him those same elements of Mr. Mm -hmm. Pink where, you know what? He's just going to take care of business. And if you're in his way, he'll get you out of his way. But there's that Mr. Blonde portion to him as well where if he has to push it a degree further and really get brutal and gruesome— in a way that I don't think Mr. Pink maybe is capable of doing or has the stomach for, that's not a concern with Ordell. So I love that character too, but Mr. Pink's my number three. This is perfect because Mr. Pink, I did consider for the jester category, but it didn't quite fit. And then I realized, and this is also a P word, you'll like this. He's my fifth Tarantino type. Okay. Philosopher. No, that was He's my other P philosopher. word. That was yeah. my other one. So, you know, it's the it's the motor mouth with conviction. Yep. You described before how there are so many talkers in Tarantino movies. Yes, there are a lot of motor mouths, but the philosopher is the one who believes what they're saying. The mm-hmm. philosopher is the one with a carefully constructed worldview behind it. So Mr. Pink, absolutely a philosopher, but my chief philosopher has to be Jules in Pulp Fiction. Back to Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, He's my number four Tarantino character. From foot rubs to cheeseburgers to final words before he shoots somebody, there's a framework behind everything Jules says, and that's what makes him fascinating. You read the Bible, Greg? Yes! Well, there's this passage I got memorized. Sort of fits this occasion. Ezekiel 25, 17. The path 
of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. Of course, over the course of Pulp Fiction, though, his philosophy changes. Uh, It shifts a little bit so that the mission statement we think he has, right, that paraphrased, adapted version of Ezekiel 2517, it means something very different when he recites it to Ringo and Honey Bunny at the end of the film than it does when he quotes it before assassinating Brett at the very beginning. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon you. I've been saying that shit for years. And if you heard it, that meant your ass. I never gave much thought to what it meant. I just thought it was some cold-blooded shit to say to a motherfucker before I popped a cap in his ass. I saw some shit this morning made me think twice. So Jules, a thoughtful guy, sees meaning in all things. We can debate how much, you know, heft and meaning we want to give to that transformation and to that final speech. But for sure, he believes it. For sure, he's a philosopher. And Mr. Pink, as I said, definitely won. There are two other pulp characters, I'd argue, are also philosophers. Harvey Keitel's Winston Wolf. He comes in with a firm idea of how the world should work and his place in it. <laughs> Still for me, a disappointing character. And I know that's heresy. Really? Yeah. Oh, no. The cleaner with a code. You got you got to love Winston Wolf and Christopher Put Watkins. Put some blankets on it. <laughs> Christopher Watkins, Captain Coons. Oh, yeah. Has, you know, a very specific philosophy on watches and family <laughs> yes. legacies. But you better believe he believes in it. This one, yeah. I don't know. We'll, we'll see what you think. Would Tim Roth's um, in The Hateful Eight discussing frontier justice. Probably. That, he probably falls into this category too, right? Yeah. But chief philosopher, it's Jules. Got yeah. Jules. And Jules is my number one Tarantino character. An obvious choice, I admit, if you look at a lot of lists out there that rank Tarantino, whether it's 10 or 25 or 50, a lot of times Jules is number one or he's number two behind Beatrix Kiddo, behind the bride from Kill Bill. But Jules, definitely my number one. And that was it. Philosopher. We definitely see that element to his character. What I love about Samuel L. Jackson, besides him just being an incredible actor and these being incredible characters, but the way this character fits into some of his other roles, you already mentioned Stephen and I talked about Ordell. And those two, I think, comprise maybe the two most irredeemable characters in all of Tarantino's work. I think maybe you could argue that. And there are a lot of them, so we could devote a list just to that, irredeemable characters. Well, they're more—yeah, we could. You're right. They're more disturbing than, in a way, than an irredeemable character like Mr. Blonde. Yes. I mean, he'd be on that list, but you kind of—once you see that, you know what you're dealing with. I think they're the scariest characters in— Tarantino's universe, and as irredeemable as those two are, we have the one he's best known for as Jules. He's the Redeemer. He's the Redeemer, the one granting salvation, grace at the end of that movie. Also worth noting that Jules recognizes that he's an actor. He says to Travolta, let's get into character. And at the end, when he's talking to Tim Roth, he points out with that speech, he's been saying it for years. If you heard it, That meant your ass. You'd be dead right now. It wasn't something he gave any thought to. It was just something he said to someone before he killed him. And that obviously is all part of a bit of performance, which is also why I think it's appropriate here at number one. 
when we had a couple weeks off and we played our Sacred Cow conversation about Pulp Fiction, that was fun to get some responses from listeners who were hearing it for the first time. One of those came in from Jim Gilbert in Essex, Vermont, who overall agreed, he said, with everything I said about Pulp Fiction, but was with you in terms of feeling like it was a movie that didn't have any there there. And I wrote back to him and said that for me, I get it. This is mostly a semantic argument anyway, but the way Tarantino crafts and develops a theme over a piece of work is the substance. And for me, Pulp Fiction is undeniably a film about redemption. I said to Jim that I don't begrudge anyone who might say the way Tarantino explores it isn't particularly deep or it doesn't resonate with you personally, but it's definitely there. And without Samuel L. Jackson's conviction to that character and that performance, that transformation would feel completely false. See, now I'm thinking, maybe it means you're the evil man and I'm the righteous man. And Mr. Nine Millimeter here, he's the shepherd protecting my righteous ass in the valley of darkness. Or it could mean you're the righteous man and I'm the shepherd. And it's the world that's evil and selfish. Now, I'd like that. But that shit ain't the truth. The truth is... You're the weak, and I am the tyranny of evil men. But I'm trying, Ringo. I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd. I don't know if there would be enough meat on the bone here to make this its own character type, but we just heard it in that monologue from Jules. The best Tarantino characters, I think, are the ones who are self-aware. You touch on this, his development, his evolution as a character over the film, and it's really all isolated there in those words, recognizing that he's the tyranny of evil men, making a decision to try to elevate himself in some way to change. For me, Jules is the most important character in Tarantino's most important film, and Samuel L. Jackson is his greatest collaborator. I think that's the one thing... We all maybe have to agree on. We could argue about who's in the two through five or two through ten slots because you've got Uma Thurman, you've got Michael Madsen, you've got even Christoph Waltz yeah, over a, lot, a couple a films, lot of Kurt Russell, faces. Tim Roth. There are a lot of recurring faces, but yeah, that seems accurate. But I think it's got to be Samuel L. Jackson because we have the three performances we've already talked about. There was a fair amount of support on social media for Major Warren from The Hateful Eight. He pops up in a cameo in Kill Bill Volume Two and uncredited voiceover in Inglorious Bastards. I had completely forgotten about this, but he pops up somewhere in True Romance as well. It's been ages since I've seen that film. But when you think about how important Samuel L. Jackson is to that film and to Tarantino's whole body of work, Jules is the slam dunk number one. You can, I think you can attribute a lot of the, the, the vibe, for lack of a better word, of a Tarantino film, just uh, the what's in the air when you think of a Tarantino film, yeah. what's in the air is a sort of chill that exudes from Samuel Jackson, uh, even if there's a lot of chaos going on. So I think he's he, they're either feeding that to each other or he's he's drawing it out of Samuel Jackson or, you know, there's definitely some simpatico in that sense as well between the two. So if listeners followed that at all, <laughs> we've gone through nine picks because we had jewels shared. Right. But we do have our individual top tens, a little bit of overlap, but we have our top tens. Why don't we list those now? All right, starting at the top for me, as I said, Jackie Brown, Pam Greer. At two, Vincent Vega, played by John Travolta. Michael Madsen's Mr. Blonde is my number three. Jules did make 
my top five, thankfully. He's at number four. Then Django hasn't come up too much. I guess I did identify him as the queen, one of the queens that I have in Tarantino's filmography. Number six for me is Max Cherry. Hans Landa is number seven, one of my inglorious, one of my two inglorious bastards picks, even though I am not the biggest fan of that film. Number eight, Mia Wallace. Number nine, there's Lieutenant Aldo Rain. And then Stephen from Django Unchained is at number 10. My number one, as mentioned just a minute ago, Jules Winfield from Pulp Fiction. At number two, I do have Beatrix Kiddo, a.k.a. The Bride. Mr. Pink at number three. Archie Hickox at four. Colonel Hans Landa at number five, our fourth overlap. I do feel bad that we didn't get to get into his character and that performance, but enough Inglorious Bastards talk for now. Max Cherry at number six, Mr. Blonde at number seven, Shoshana from Inglorious Bastards at number eight, Ordell from Jackie Brown is nine, and Daisy Domergue giving the Hateful Eight some love and that performance from Jennifer Jason Lee in my 10th slot. If you want to revisit those picks, you can see our complete list over at filmspotting.net. Just click on lists at the top of the page, and Josh, that is our show. It is, but if for some reason that's not enough Tarantino talk for you, go to the Film Spotting archives at filmspotting.net. We reviewed when they came out, Hateful Eight and Django Unchained, and we've also revisited Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction as Sacred Cows. So a lot of Tarantino content there in the show archives. There are interviews as well and top fives going all the way back to 2005. Also at filmspotting.net, you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking about the MCU's Phase 4. Which film project that they just announced are you most excited about? To order Film Spotting t-shirts or other Film Spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And to subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, filmspotting.net slash newsletter, that's where you can do it. Out in wide release this weekend. Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, recommended by both of us next week. Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw. We will review that film and revisit our top five Fast and Furious moments. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.